Right now on Matter of Fact, in the 1930s, black sharecroppers in the Mississippi Delta knew a life of cotton, servitude, and the blues. Among them, a man determined to rise up. After he bought the farm, he never did moonshine again. There was a means to the end. Yeah. Meet the Arkansas entrepreneur, turning his family legacy into a one-of-a-kind business, five generations in the making. Cheers. Plus, how do you tell the story of a civil rights icon? And I just remember sitting there just saying, why isn't there a John Lewis comic book? What it took to bring the life of Congressman John Lewis to the pages of a graphic novel. But first, America's teenagers are in crisis. I tend to isolate myself when things get hard, but this was like a whole different isolation. If a person is sick, they go to the doctor. It's the same for if you have a mental health need. What can be done for teens in need when there aren't enough counselors to help them? I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Depending on where you live, the school year is underway or just weeks from starting. With the anticipation comes anxiety. COVID-19 is still here along with the threats of monkeypox and other common flu and cold viruses. There's economic uncertainty that's rocked many families and the shortage of school staff presents new challenges. That's all weighing on teenagers in those classrooms affecting their mental health. According to a 2021 survey by the American Psychological Association, young people requesting treatment for depressive disorders rose 12% in a single year. And treatment requests for anxiety disorders rose 10%. But a nationwide shortage of mental health professionals means more school counselors are left trying to fill in the gaps. Our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, visited one Los Angeles community where educators are doing what they can to help kids in need. With respect to T, because we've got these DTs all over the place here. In the Los Angeles suburb of Pico Rivera, high school life slowly getting back to normal. Just stepping into campus again, it felt really good because like now I'm able to actually physically talk to people. For only child Charlene Bravo, the isolation of being at home alone for so long was at times unbearable. All that silence, it was overwhelming at times. What's been hard about school? Bravo, part of an increased wave of students now seeking help from the school's mental health counselors. We're seeing needs that are much more intensive than we would before the pandemic. The El Rancho Unified School District, predominantly Latino, was hit hard during the pandemic, and school was virtual for almost a year and a half. Students will come in and their heart is racing, right? Their, their breathing is shallow. It's like their body doesn't know how to function um, in a classroom where they have to sit still, they have to focus, they have to think, they have to solve problems. While the district has increased funding for mental health counselors over the past decade, like many others in California, it needs more. According to the American School Counselor Association, California schools have an average 572 students for every one counselor. That's more than double the recommended ratio, ranking California among the bottom 10 states in the nation. California State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tony Thurmond. Our school staff see an increase in behaviors as kids have come back to school. Um, they see a lot of emotional needs. They see a lot of depression. 
And at the same time, our schools were saying, we don't have enough counselors to meet that need. Today we came to learn about the great mental health programs being offered here. Thurmond is now asking the state for help, co-sponsoring legislation that would provide grants to 10,000 students getting their masters in mental health fields. In exchange for the $25,000 grant, each graduate would have to commit to two years working in schools or other nonprofit organizations that serve kids. This can be someone who has a master's in social work, a master's in family therapy, master's in psychology, or a master's in school psychology, and they will get access to scholarships and help with loan deferral and other things that will help us to increase the pipeline of folks who want to be mental health clinicians. A solution counselors here say can't come fast enough for students in crisis. I have a lot of like built up trauma and like if I wasn't able to talk about it, definitely I, would, I wouldn't be here. I am very grateful for that. In Pico Rivera, California, for matter of fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Since we first reported this story, State Superintendent Tony Thurmond has announced 10,000 grants for postgraduate students who are studying to become mental health counselors. Next on Matter of Fact. What have you discovered about messaging around health information to communities of color? People do not want to be told what to do, no matter how much it's in their best interest. What this researcher has learned about the science of building trust. And still ahead, this artist spent five years at the drawing table, recreating civil rights history, how he helped turn the story of the late Congressman John Lewis into a graphic novel. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. One of the biggest threats to public health is misinformation. It's hard to stop and it can spread quickly on social media. During the pandemic, misinformation about COVID-19 caused chaos. It slowed efforts to vaccinate the public, led to harassment over mask mandates, and in some cases promoted unproven treatments. Misinformation poses an even greater danger to people without reliable access to affordable health care. Shanice Hudson chairs the Hood Medicine Initiative, an effort started by MIT alums to get good science information into communities of color. Dr. Hudson, thanks for talking with me. Do you think people of color are more vulnerable or are particularly vulnerable to misinformation and, and disinformation about um, health information generally? There's been a lot of data over the past few years that show that our communities in particular are being targeted online with um, health mis and disinformation, particularly about the pandemic. And I think our communities are particularly vulnerable because of, of the mistrust that a lot of us have for the health systems in our country and the government due to America's long history of unethical human experimentation and medical abuses that, you know, are very familiar to us all. What are your strategies to try to push back on misinformation and disinformation? A lot of the information that we develop, especially for social media, is culturally tailored. We have experts who are always sort of on call to answer our DMs. We have, you know, a weekly radio show that we do and podcasts, and we provide a lot of opportunities for 
our followers and our audience to connect directly with the people in our network. What have you discovered about messaging around health information to communities of color? The number one thing that we have understood over the course of these past two years is that people do not want to be told what to do, no matter how much it's in their best interest. You know, you have to really find clever ways to um, give people over to an understanding. And it's better if it does have that kind of community tailoring aspect where it feels like it's coming from a familiar voice. You do a lot of work in the maternal child health area. And I'm curious, using that as a model, walk me through how it, how it works. A lot of the work that we do in that space right now is in South Central LA. So on the social media side, we have developed um, some campaigns and <clears throat> content to help people, all birthing people, understand um, different facets of care from breastfeeding to um, prenatal care. And now we are working so that we can sort of have... Um, <laughs> have a lactation services truck to help women who maybe don't have as much access to prenatal visits, to lactation support, to doulas, a disadvantaged mother all the way to Serena Williams. We all have the same stories because of the way that we're treated in labor and delivery. So it's personal, but we're, we're very much hoping that we can make a difference. Are you optimistic? that your organization can really break through and make a difference? If you ask my comrades, they would probably say I'm the least optimistic person in the group. But if I can help somebody else get the care that they need, then I feel like maybe there's hope for me. Why does that make you cry? Because I suffer, I think, um, with the conditions that I have and not having my needs met by my medical care providers and the way that I'm treated. I still have had so many terrible, terrible traumatic experiences. And it's like, you know, maybe that won't change for me, but maybe it'll, maybe I can make a difference for someone else. I think you're definitely going to make a difference for somebody else, for sure. Thank you for talking with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. For more information on Dr. Hudson's work, go to hoodmedicine.org. Coming up on Matter of Fact, one family is lifting up spirits in the Mississippi Delta. I mean, it's not something that black people just do is to open up a distillery and open up a business that has the potential to be as successful as I think we're gonna be. We trace the roots of this family business and give you a taste of its legacy. And later, we explain the science behind California's plan to give 4,000 miles of canals some supersized shade. enough to start a business even when you have lots going in your favor. Plenty of capital, a great location, and a product in high demand. For black Americans, racism and legal barriers have limited opportunities for business ownership. Despite the challenges, one family in rural Arkansas has owned and operated their 86-acre farm since 1949. Now they run the only black-owned farm in the area and are expanding to another, first of its kind, black-owned business venture. Our correspondent, Dina Demetrius, visited Helena, Arkansas, in the heart of the Mississippi River Delta, where Harvey and Donna Williams are investing in the town that five generations of their family have called home. 
there's more to this town than a bunch of old farmers. I mean, there, there's so much more. I want and I believe that this distillery can bring some, some positive light to that. Harvey Williams is a trailblazer in a town he's known all his life. Helena, Arkansas sits in one of the state's poorest counties. But Williams' new distillery proves there's richness in the Mississippi Delta and an opportunity for unity. This is a mixed crowd in this space in Helena, which is one of the rare places where you'll see people in a social construct really you know, enjoying themselves. Patrons from all over the Delta are drawn to Williams' award-winning vodka and gin made from sweet potatoes grown on his family farm. Opened just a year ago, Delta Dirt is the only black-owned farm distillery in the country. But for Williams and his wife, Delta Dirt is distinguished by something even more profound. Donna and I were intentional about wanting our business to be for all people. I know the businesses, they're either black or they're white. And for the most part, they're patronized by either black or white. And we didn't want to be that. Delta Dirt offers a glimmer of hope in an area marked by racial divides and lack of prosperity. It's the only thriving venture on historic Cherry Street. But Williams hopes his success can attract other aspiring entrepreneurs to this town of 9,000 people. I just think Helena deserves a business that can bring people in to see the beauty in the town. Williams, an agricultural engineer, and his family returned to the area after years of working outside the state. I didn't necessarily want to farm, like drive tractors every day, uh, but I did want the farm to be sustained. In the early decades of the 20th century, his great-grandfather was a sharecropper on these 86 acres. But his grandfather devoted himself to buying the land in 1949, selling his cotton for a higher price to someone other than the landowner. And he sold some spirits on the side. The thing is, after he bought the farm, he never did moonshine again. I'm like, okay, so there was a, there was a means to the end there. William's father later diversified into raising vegetables, including sweet potatoes. That move has given Williams a chance to expand the family business using his own creative juices. That checked a lot of boxes for me to be able to run a business, grow a business, grow a brand, and still have that farm take care and uh, be sustained. It took a lot of learning um, just to understand the distillery business, and I went to conferences about distilling. And most people say this is sweet, but this is a barley. Despite all his groundwork and expertise, Williams was unable to get bank loans. The family used all their savings to start the distillery. He's now inspired to share how the next generation of rural black families can expand their own opportunities to create generational wealth. I had a group of uh, FFA students, Future Farmers of America students from the high school I graduated from. And part of it is letting them know that there's more to farming than just driving tractors and doing that. Uh, this is about business. Williams has passed this spirit to his children, like son Thomas, who has become a head distiller. But sadly, Harvey Sr., whose support and guidance was an essential ingredient in their success, passed away last year. I could tell he was proud of us and what we had you know, accomplished, especially in, in this area. I mean, it's not something that black people just do is to open up a distillery and open up a business that has the potential to be as successful as I think we're going to be. For my family, it definitely will be transformational. 
The Williams family is lifting up its own legacy while raising spirits in the Delta. Cheers. In Helena, Arkansas, I'm Dina Demetrius for Matter of Fact. Next on Matter of Fact, California's water canals could generate some much needed power. The solar solution creating a big buzz. is often referred to as liquid gold, maybe especially in drought-stricken areas. Well now, California has a plan to save around 63 billion gallons of water from evaporating each year. How? By covering the state's 4,000 miles of water canals with solar panels. Those panels provide shade over the canals, cooling the water and preventing evaporation. Plus, the panels can generate renewable power that can be fed back into the power grid. That power is estimated to be more than 15% of the state's current capacity. We think solar canals have the potential to benefit California, but to add renewable capacity and drought resilience across the arid west. For example, Arizona, like California, has thousands of miles of canals. Once all of the state's canals are covered, it's estimated that the water saved will be enough to meet the needs of about 2 million residents. Ahead on Matter of Fact. And I just remember sitting there just saying, why isn't there a John Lewis comic book? That's quite a departure. I mean, you've got a civil rights icon. What was his response? He said, I thought that boy lost his mind. The story of a different kind of history book. We mark two years since the passing of Congressman John Lewis, a dedicated advocate of nonviolent civil disobedience. Lewis spent his life agitating for social justice, inspiring the term good trouble. One of his staffers, Andrew Iden, convinced the congressman to record his story in graphic novel form. The result is an award-winning trilogy called March. The series took close to five years to produce. Artist Nate Powell was tapped to create every image. Our special correspondent, Alexis Clark, asked Powell what it was like illustrating the life of a civil rights icon. His public persona really was fundamentally who he was as a person. How did you capture the hatred and the racism? Uh, it was a balancing act throughout. A lot of it really has to do with framing it through the lens of the people who survived the violence and endured the violence, uh, and at times flipping the camera on the page uh, to force the reader into a position in which they were perpetrating the violence against some of these civil rights activists. You can watch the entire report about the making of March featured on our recent Matter of Fact listening tour, Trailblazers, Troublemakers, and Dreams. Just go to our website, matteroffact.tv. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto, and YouTube.